Welcome to the A Podcast, Always Bet on Black with Paula Glover. Today, we're talking to Carla Peterman, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Regulatory Affairs for Southern California Edison. Carla is a Rhodes Scholar, a graduate of Howard University, Oxford, and UC Berkeley. She's an environmentalist and a leader. And she'll talk with us about how she takes a pragmatic approach to making decisions, to vulnerability and being a leader, um, and how you can be authentic in everything that you do. And so I'll start with really the beginning and want to, you know, ask if you would share a little bit about like kind of where you grew up, how you grew up, that sort of thing. Where are you from? Uh, Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. It's a real pleasure. I am from New Jersey, originally Newark, New Jersey. And then when I was in middle school, we moved to South Orange, one of the suburbs. And uh, my mother is from New Jersey as well. So second generation. And I grew up with my mom and my dad and my brother. And a real hallmark of my growing up was education. My mom's a college professor, retired now. And my dad was in the insurance business. And they both were very much focused. He originally was a teacher, actually. So they were both very focused on education and made sure that we hit the books early and often, which has been a theme in my life. And have you, you, you obviously, did you like school? I did. I, I really liked school. Um, I, again, from an early age, liked to read. And so I think my mother likes to tell the story how I came home crying in fourth grade because I heard that Harvard checked back to your fourth grade report cards and I'd gotten a B on the test and I was concerned that I wouldn't get into Harvard and so she told me she was like I realized then you were going to be harder on yourself than we were so I had to tell you just relax a little bit it'll be okay but I always I'm very curious and so school was a good way for me to just learn about the world. Okay so you from South Carolina I will tell you I live in Montclair so very South Orange and Newark and yeah uh, that area. So you leave um, world. <laughs> high school and you decide to go to Howard. I did. I went to Howard, which was funny. When I went to Howard, um, I had gotten early action admission to Yale and they sent me a letter saying, we're sorry, um, but good luck at Harvard. So it was funny. And I was like, nope, not Harvard, Howard. <laughs> Howard. Oh, so what made you decide though, Howard, as opposed to, you know, fourth grade, you're worried about whether or not you're going to get into Harvard. Um, <laughs> You clearly kind of got a little bit different perspective. What made you decide HBCU? There's a couple things and it was a very practical choice. Um, so when I was deciding to go to college, I knew I wanted to be a history major. And I came from a middle-class family and my parents were supportive of me going wherever I wanted to. But we also talked about the financial costs. And my mom, being a professor at Rutgers University, I uh, I could go there um, with free tuition. And so the choices for me were go to Rutgers with free tuition or take out a lot of loans and go to Yale because those were the only two schools I initially had applied to. And then I prayed on it. We were active in church and just neither decision felt quite right. And I kid you not, on Sunday, I prayed about it. On Monday, I got a letter from Howard University offering me a full scholarship and I hadn't applied. It was something they were trying out that year where they were offering full scholarships to national achievement scholars, um, you know, African-American students in high school who gotten a certain score on their SATs. And they were doing that again to, you know, really attract a broad range of students. And so when I got this, I thought, 
hey, maybe Howard. And my mom actually was a graduate of Howard. Uh, my dad was a graduate of Albany State. So lots of people in my family had gone to HBCUs. And knowing that I wanted to be a history major, and at the time I wanted to be an environmental lawyer afterwards, so I knew I'd have to pay for law school. It just made sense to go somewhere. My mom said, you know, you study history anywhere. And so um, it seemed like a good option. And I also thought it would be just a really good experience to be in DC, uh, to be a part of the Howard community. And so I made that choice and it ended up being the best choice for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty. So that's interesting. Your parents both went to HBCUs and they, they didn't necessarily push you to go to an HBCU. Um, that's no, they did not. And I, um, they weren't discouraging of it, but they didn't push us. My brother went to Princeton. And so again, we were both very academically inclined. And so the other students in our school went to very diverse uh, high schools, but the other students who were top of their class were applying to Ivy Leagues. And so that's what we did as well. Um, you know, but you know, now I talk to, I'll talk to young people and say, where you go to college matters. Um, but really what matters most is what you do with it when you get there. And so the conversation I had with my parents, they, we talked about the fact that Howard wasn't ranked as high academically. And so that what I would need to do if I went there was to really excel and distinguish myself if I wanted to be able to get into a top law school or graduate school. And, you know, it ended up really taking, taking that mantra very seriously. And so I was really intentional. I went to Howard. To, to be a leader. I ended up creating a few organizations when I was there. And a couple of things that I did at Howard um, positioned me ultimately to get the Rhodes Scholarship. And so I don't think I would have been as well positioned to get the Rhodes if I was somewhere else because the Rhodes is really about demonstration of yourself as a leader. And so at Howard, I was able to um, be the captain of my lacrosse team. Uh, we're at the only HBCU with a lacrosse team. I was able to start an environmental organization. I started uh, with some others, an organization called Hughes, Howard University Environmental Society. Um, I ended up being able to study uh, history and biology. I ended up actually focusing on European history at a black college, which is kind of a unique thing to do. But if I had been at a majority school, those many of those institutions would have existed, like the lacrosse team, like the environmental um, society. So I wouldn't have had the chance to offer my own spin on it. So by the time I applied for the Rhodes Scholarship, which is a very prestigious scholarship that lets you go to graduate school in England, I was able to really identify um, these particular leadership opportunities and really position myself um, then as a, as a standout undergrad. So what put the Rhodes Scholarship on your radar? Where did you hear about it so that you would know that you know that's something that you would aspire to get? So good question. I think this gets with the theme of a lot of things in my life have happened through a combination of, I think, blessings and circumstance. And I like to say that, you know, you don't always know when opportunity is going to come, but you got, you got to be ready for it. Or I usually would actually say is I don't have to have center stage, but if you give me a microphone, I know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's better. Well, won't waste the opportunity. Uh, but, you know, you know, the roads, just like with Howard, again, something that was perfect for me, but wasn't on my radar. I found out about the Rhodes Scholarship because I was a student admin assistant in the honors office on Howard's campus. So my job was opening the mail, doing administrative work. And I opened up a letter that had come from the Rhodes Trust. And again, that was something new they were trying that year where they were explicitly targeting 
colleges that weren't typically represented in the Rhodes Scholarship and trying to encourage people to apply. And again, this is a full scholarship to graduate schools, the most prestigious undergraduate graduate school scholarship you can get. And there was this one page that said, should I apply for the Rhodes Scholarship? And it said, are, are, do you have good grades? You know, check. Um, have you been a leader? Have you done um, sports? And, you know, all these things that you have to check off. And I said, wait, I fit that. I fit that. I fit that. I said, maybe I should apply for this. And I literally applied, decided to apply a month before the application was due. And if you, you know, at Ivy League schools, for example, or bigger schools, they identify students sophomore year to apply for the scholarship senior year. I've been a judge now several times of the scholarship since I got it, you know, 20 plus years ago. And there is a real process by which individuals are developed, groomed for this opportunity. And so here I was a month before uh, deciding to apply. And I'm really grateful for the community I had at Howard because I had professors and other students who helped quiz me and ask me questions. And really what I think helped my application stand out was that I was very true to myself. I, yeah, I just told my story and it turned out that my story was a fit with what the scholarship was supposed to represent. Since I've left Howard, there've now been at least one, maybe two um, Howard students who've gotten the scholarship. And I was the second person from a black college to get it and the first woman. And then since then, there's been more from Black colleges and starting to see Black colleges, you know, develop institutional awareness and knowledge around how to apply for these competitive opportunities. And again, that's been a real theme of my life, which is I've oftentimes been the first African-American into something. And it's not because I am the talented, most talented, but it's because I somehow found out about the opportunity. And so what I try to do now as a mentor and as a leader is make people aware of these opportunities that if we bring ourselves forward to participate in, we can be successful at. So let's, I, I wanna go back to your story. I'm gonna go back to your story, but I'm interested in what you just said, because I think that's a, an, almost an overarching theme if you think about just the work of the association and the time that we're living in today that is so much about educating communities about opportunities. Um, and so, like what happens after that, right? Talk about kind of, because it wasn't just about you being educated about the opportunity, taking advantage of the opportunity, um, but that you also clearly did something to let other students know that this is an opportunity for them as well, that you're not a one-off. And, and so what needs to happen to ensure that it's not a one-off, that it's not, well, Carla got it and she's an anomaly and not another student will get it, but that we've got it now have some sort of underpinning in the, in the institution so that more students see themselves in that opportunity, if that makes sense. Sure, I mean, I think one thing that has to happen is demystifying the experience and really explaining that I was an anomaly and also what I did to make it happen. So first of all, is providing and sharing that blueprint. You know, when I decided to apply for it, I did a few very practical things. You know, I did, first I had 28 different versions of my essay that I submitted. And so one of the things that I talk with folks about is, and young people, it doesn't happen overnight. There is a, there is a hard work and practice that comes from presenting yourself. Um, I also, at the time, did a lot of meditation. I used to sit on top of Howard's library and say, I am a Rhodes Scholar, I am a Rhodes Scholar. And at the time there were others who I, I would say, there was not a general belief that I was gonna get it when I was a, a student. I had students tell me, 
people like us don't get that. You shouldn't apply or you're not student council president. You know, people had in their minds what it meant to be a leader. And I was a leader in more kind of fringe things like environmentalism. And so, and then also what I did was I read the newspaper every single day. I read the New York Times from front to back because I knew that the scholarship was about showing that I was a citizen of the world. And my intention in those interviews was to have a conversation with these other leaders, really see that as an opportunity. So I provide that background about what I did prepare and then what I actually then did in order to help institutionalize it was sit down with leadership of the college and university and say, hey, here's this opportunity. Here's what I did to prepare. Here are some of the things that would have helped me uh, do it, um, including having former Rhodes Scholars to talk to. So one of the things that I still do is every time someone reaches out to me and says they're interested in the program, I talk to them about my experience. What the campus did was to sit down with those of us who had applied for these scholarships and understand what the practice looks like, sharing with people example of former essays. I mean, all of that, it really gets to just access and making myself accessible and also making my, my method of preparation access, accessible. And so now you're at Oxford for graduate school. Share a little bit about what was that experience like for you? Because I, I would suspect there were not a lot of Black women at Oxford, certainly not a lot of Black American women at Oxford when you were there. Is that, would that be right? That, that, is, that is correct. Um, there's a, like a, a quote from a former Rhodes Scholar you know, years ago. It's like, the best thing about the Rhodes Scholarship is you go to Oxford. The worst thing is you go to Oxford. Um, the, <laughs> it was... It was different for me. I had been out of the country to twice in my life by that point, Tijuana, Mexico, yeah, driving with an aunt. And then I'd gone to Australia for one week to visit a college roommate who went on an exchange program. So I didn't have much experience. I was lonely, you know, just all the things you would expect. But as an African-American, what was liberating for me in some ways was in England, I was perceived as an American, not just a Black American, just an American, right? And so when I said, like, I went to Howard University, there wasn't, you know, typically we say that in the U.S., people either say, oh, where's that? Or they'll say, oh, good for you. Or, I, you know, they say something positive about it as a, as a Black institution. But there, they're like, well, I, don't, I don't know the difference between Howard or Stanford or, you know, Harvard. So, and in, in England, people tend to not wear their resumes and their sleeve as much. So I found that when I met people, I wasn't, there were less assumptions made about me because I was from New Jersey or I was a black American. It was more, there were just stereotypes about me being American. And so it, as, an, as a place, it gave me some freedom to be something, to be, to express more of myself and not feel as put into a box. And so I am, um, because there were so few black Americans, I got to define myself in a way that wasn't about race in America. And Frankly, that's what was my experience at Howard. When people ask me what it was like to not go to a racially diverse undergraduate school, I said it was freeing because I was able to be so many other parts of myself beyond my race, which then allowed me to feel very comfortable as an adult about how my race is a complement to all the other facets of who I am. And so, you know, I, I really loved England. I, I stayed there for three years. I got two degrees. I worked there. And then I made a conscious decision to come back to the US because I knew I wanted to do environmental policy, sustainability policy, and I wanted to do it in a place where I could be benefiting the community I was raised and the country where I was raised. And I knew to do that, it was time for me to come home. And then you went to Berkeley. 
Yeah. So then I no, then I went into investment banking. So okay. then I went and you know spent some time on Wall Street and realized pretty quickly that it was not where my passion was. I've always been oriented to things that are more more public service, more policy. It was a good experience for me because it helped me understand um, kind of what motivates certain business decisions and also that there are people behind every institution. No institution is a monolithic, oh, this is Wall Street, this is a bank, this is a utility. They're all people who are trying to optimize something. And if you can try to find where the synergies are between what you're trying to optimize and they are, you can actually have some really productive relationships. But yeah, so I did that for a couple of years uh, and then decided I wanted to go get my PhD and just figure out what contribution I wanted to be making in the energy and environmental space. And so I came to Berkeley because of the institutions I was looking at for my PhD, the only thing people could say bad about Berkeley was that I might learn too much about energy. Um, that was literally some of the feedback I got because folks said, well, you know, you're, you seem like you're a policy and economics person, but if you go to Berkeley, you probably have to do some engineering. Or, you know, if you, if you, if you go there, then you might have to learn about this. And I intentionally chose an interdisciplinary graduate program because I do believe that the solutions to our climate issues, which is what motivated me to go to um, graduate school, really require integrating financial, uh, philosophical, scientific, policy uh, questions and issues. And I wanted to have a grounding in many disciplines to help inform the, the recommendations I would bring forward. And I have found that grounding essential both in my work in public service and in my work as a utility now. So, I mean, this is, you, you talk about environmental environment and clearly that was, the environment was an interest of yours even as a, as a child, it sounds like. What mm -hmm. drove that, that level of curiosity that you would then carry it through to the work that you're doing now? Um, so you can't you know, pinpoint probably the, I don't know what probably the earliest, earliest interaction was, but the one that's most significant for me was when I was 16, I, my older brother gave me two things at Christmas time. One was he shared with me a paper he'd written by about Love Canal in New York. And in Love Canal in New York, um, really classic story of environmental justice, environmental pollution. You had a community uh, that was that was impacted by um, pollution and uh, water hazard. And in order to solve those issues with that community required an understanding of, of science, economics, law and policy. And reading that paper, I just thought, wow, these are the types of problems I wanna work on. Things that have a, a grounding in physical science, but also require a real, a personal element. So that got me interested in environmental justice. And then for the, actually for my Christmas present, he gave me a book by Aldo Leopold, who's a Midwestern conservationist and um, Sam County Almanac is the book. And Sam County Almanac is a series of vignettes about nature and about the interplay of different species and mankind and kind of what changes in the environment when hunters uh, start to hunt or don't hunt and just the interdependency of everything in ecology. And, and that book really was formative for me. It is the basis of my, I would say my leadership philosophy, my regulatory philosophy, which is that everything is interdependent. And if you affect one thing, you affect another. 
So it was a combination of those two gifts from my brother that got me interested in being an environmental attorney. I thought I would, you know, this was in the um, 90s. I was reading things by um, like Robert Bullard um, and um, you know, others in the EJ movement and said, you know, this is where I want to have impact. And then I went to graduate school and started learning economics. And I decided I switched course. And as much as I value the work that environmental attorneys do, a lot of that work is had, unfortunately, after the fact. Uh, we're trying to dismantle infrastructure that's already been approved, um, you know, working with communities to minimize harm. And I made a decision to move from environmental law to energy infrastructure because I was interested in, and I still am about how do you build things in a way that are just and equitable upfront? Uh, what are the decisions and trade-offs that one has to make in terms of that infrastructure deployment? And that got me into the space that I'm in now. So would you describe yourself, you're certainly an environmentalist, would you describe yourself as an environmentalist or no? I would, I, you know, I would, I would describe myself as a pragmatic environmentalist, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I mean, if more than anything, more than being environmentalist, I'm just, uh, my focus is people. I really like people. I'm an extrovert. I just, I just am just so grateful every day to get to live on this earth as a human being. And so I'm very much interested, maybe it's a selfish motivation about you know, how, how do the interdependencies of our economy, of our environment need to work? to let people live their fullest lives, right? And so for me, the biggest issue over my life that I think is threatening that has been climate change and it exasperates other things that cause um, uh, lack of well-being, like um, you know, poverty, for example, you know, food hunger. And so for me, climate change is the way in which I figure if we can address that, we can also help to reduce some of the other things that really stop people from living full lives. And part of that comes back, just uh, I'll say to just this grounding in justice. You know, my parents were both um, raised in uh, periods of segregation, my dad particularly in the South, and they instilled in me this sense of you have to work harder in order to achieve your full potential. And for them, that way of doing that was education. And the step I took with that was education as a means to help me then address these bigger problems that are also helping particularly people of color not fully actualize. So how do you kind of bring together, right? Because you are, I would say, a pragmatist, um, as you even described the decisions that you made very early on um, about what school you would go to and how you thought about it. Those are very pragmatic kind of the steps that you took. And how do you bring that with that thinking with solving these problems that can be when you're dealing with people who have, you know, who are activists on either side, right? Um, and so they're not necessarily looking for a pragmatic solution. They're kind of picking a side um, and looking for you if you're in public service, in a corporation, in any kind of leadership role um, to just choose the side um, that you agree with. How do you get people to kind of meet you in the middle to, to solve the problems as you've described it? Yeah, well, a very good question. And it starts from, this kind of gets to my love of people. It starts from a place of really appreciating that every role has value and there's an interdependency of these different positions. And so I would not have been a good regulator. I would not be a good utility executive if there weren't people pushing me in both extremes. 
right? I think that there is a necessary and important role for activists. They keep the momentum and they help identify where aspirationally we should go. Um, I think, you know, similarly, there's a role for the real technical folks, engineers, to help ground us in the physical laws of the world that we have. There's a role for those who are thinking about financial issues to help us figure out how do you actually translate um, aspiration and ambition into steel on the ground. And so there's a role for people like me who really enjoy taking these different perspectives and trying to find a way to move forward. The, the graduate program I was in, I mentioned it is interdisciplinary and someone from the program talked about to have a strong building you need bricks and you also need mortar. And the mortar is what helps keep the bricks together. I am, where I naturally feel more comfortable is being in the mortar. And so it's, um, you know, my, my natural space is I have, a, I have vision, but that vision is really rooted in a very pragmatic sense of, you know, what is the path of least resistance and next step to move us along that way? I acknowledge, you know, sometimes maybe I'm too incremental in my, in my thinking, but that is the place where, where I naturally sit. And so what I try to, and I aspire to as a leader is to be vulnerable and to be open to criticism. And that was important for me as a regulator as well, to have people tell me, you know what, what you're proposing makes sense, but it just doesn't go far enough. Like, even if you're, you're rational, we got to push further. And I like to be in that space where I get that feedback and I like to sit on it and sleep on it. And at the end of the day, I have to feel that I can live with the decisions that I make. Um, but that's a long way to answer, you know, how do I manage the different perspectives? happily because I'd rather be informed to make a good decision than to tune everyone out and make the wrong one because these decisions are going to impact people beyond our lifetime and I take very seriously the importance and opportunity to be the decision maker. Very few people have that and so I'd like to do that in a way that is thoughtful to say the least. So how do you not let the noise get to you? Right, because I've been on the other side of that that kind of noise where people um, don't necessarily think that they're, they're, the issues are incredibly emotional for folks. And so they don't necessarily do good with like balanced solutions or even anybody who's speaking very calmly and trying to lay out a case for whatever direction um, you're going in. And, and I've met a lot of leaders who have a hard time with like kind of ignoring all that and just staying focused. How do you do that? I mean, I do it a couple ways. I mean, one thing is literally just telling people to be quiet sometimes so I can think. You know, I, like sometimes I've been, <laughs> I remember having a couple of meetings when I, when I became a, a commissioner, you know, you go into a room, you have a 30 minute meeting, and you've got four different opinions telling you what you need to decide that seems pretty impossible in 30 minutes. And I've had moments where I go, shh, I need to think. And just like silence. <laughs> so partly it's finding that time for silence. Um, two, it's, giving myself the grace to acknowledge that it is my decision to make a lot of times mm -hmm. you can get input but as the decision maker ultimately i have to live with it and if others want to make the decisions they should become the decision maker i mean that's at some point there is a point where you go you know there's a lot of opinions to be had but only one or two people have to sign their name to something and so giving myself the grace and the belief in myself that I can make a good decision with the information that I have. The other thing I do also too is like recognize that nothing is finite. There's not a law, there is not a decision that 
has to persist if it is the wrong one. Uh, we have these institutions that are intentionally designed to allow people, allow us a society to change our minds. And so um, if I made a decision on the Public Utilities Commission that it was the wrong one, there's a process for creating a new one. And so also giving myself the grace to know that I'm just not that important in the end. Yeah, that, that's, I'm thinking about your response because it's a really good one. Um, so you've served right in public service. You've been on the Public Utility Commission, but you've also been on the California Energy Commission, correct? Correct. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about the difference between those two bodies mm -hmm. um, and then how your work really in both of those bodies were, are very similar in some ways? Yeah, sure. sure. Um, so I was really fortunate when I, as, as you mentioned, I went to moved out to California to go to do my graduate degree at UC Berkeley. And I, my dissertation was on California renewable energy policies and a mix of economics. So I've been studying all these California programs, a lot of them which were at the California Energy Commission at the time. And then Governor Brown started his third term um, in, in history. And he was um, building up the different commissions and his appointees and had a real intention about having appointee mix that was diverse. You know, one thing about Governor Brown to note was, I think he was the first governor to reach gender uh, parity in his appointments with 50% of his appointments being women. And so I was near the end of my dissertation and knew I wanted to do something in policy, didn't know what. And through some various connections, my name came to his office's attention and I hadn't been um, an appointee or in political service before but they were interested in the work that I was doing and the perspective that I could bring. And so I got this appointment to the Energy Commission and at 32, so I was very young relative to most appointees. Mm -hmm. And I decided one thing I'll, I'll share is that when you're young and the first African-American female, people didn't know what to expect out of me. And so I said, well, I'm, since people don't know what I'm going to do, let me do what I where I feel I'm comfortable with. And again, let me let me own the space that I feel comfortable with, uh, even though others had ideas for different agendas and such. But to get to your question, the Energy Commission is California's agency that's focused on planning, and it came about initially when there were plans to start building nuclear plants all along the coast of California, and there was an awareness that. Um, it would be important to have some kind of centralized authority looking at the state's energy needs and making sure that we were really doing the siting of energy facilities in an environmentally um, safe manner. So the Energy Commission became the lead agency for siting of power plants. And they still are the lead agency for CEQA review, which is the, the major environmental permitting process. And so they site, um, all thermal generation. So like some of the cases I had were like gas plants, for example, when I was at the CEC. And they then they were then extended to develop the energy efficiency standards for the state. They managed several uh, incentive programs for clean energy. And so, you know, they do that work as compared to the Public Utilities Commission, which is what you see, every state has one. The PUC is the economic regulator for investor-owned utilities. So in some ways I described it as they control the, the, the pocketbook, the purse strings a bit. So more money, more problems in terms of some of the decisions you have to make. <laughs> um, and the PUC regulates not only electric and gas companies, but also telecom, other sectors. And so for me, starting at the Energy Commission, 
was a wonderful experience because it leveraged my academic background and I really got to spend time thinking about the, our policies writ large as a state, um, what are the policies that would get us closer to our state goals, understand some of the tensions between centralized and local government um, while managing through the permitting process of power plants. There's nothing as contentious as a power plant siting. So that was a real education for me in, in some of those trade-offs between the personal, personal needs and the state needs, and both are important, right? Um, and then when I got appointed to the Public Utilities Commission afterwards, I had, you know, it, it allowed me then to focus more on the economics of the business, um, as well as, you know, specifics around power procurement. And tr all of these agencies are focused on that balance between having resources that are safe, reliable, affordable, and environmentally um, least impactful. And that's even what I do as a utility at a utility now, really thinking about how do we build an energy system that accounts for each of these things that we want that we don't want to trade off too much. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's what my background is. So did any of this having worked in the public service commission um, as serving as a commissioner, did, did, you, did you learn anything that kind of surprised you or did you see something about how companies operate that you thought, oh, wow, I hadn't realized that that was kind of how they think about this. Have you ever had any of those kinds of moments? Sure. I mean, and even more so now that I'm actually working for a company, mm -hmm. I think that the, it is you know, running, most businesses don't get run as much in the public eye as utilities do. And it makes sense because utilities are providing this essential service. And they're also at the same time, you know, trying to provide that essential service and be transparent while doing all the things that a business has to do. Everything from making sure that you have updated information systems, that you are um, hiring the right personnel, that you're, that you're looking forward and identifying risk. And that, I'll mention something I think is unique about our sector and is a challenge both on the regulatory and utility side, which is in other businesses, you're able to proactively spend to manage risk that you see coming down the future. And you're also able to have a higher risk appetite, I think in other industries to try something and have it fail. So I'm, you know, I don't work for Google, but I imagine if you're at Google, you can say, hey, we think this is gonna be the trend of the future. Let's spend R&D money on that. If it doesn't work, so be it. Right. However, when you're with a, a utility and you are spending money that comes from customers, or you know, hard earned money from rate payers, there's not the same risk tolerance from the public, nor from the regulator for getting things wrong. And there's also an interest in really spending on what will be used and useful. And so my experience has been that it can be hard to get approval. And it was hard for me as a regulator to approve utility spend on things that were um, less clear on risk that we didn't know. And I think that results in sometimes just-in-time approval for you know, big investments, whether that be clean energy or reliability, where if we could have started spending you know, years before the need identified, we might, you know, the system may be, would be ready when that risk manifested. And, and for me, the one area where I was able to do that as a regulator was on energy storage. When I came to the commission, we had a law that asked us to look at setting targets for energy storage. And 
there wasn't a need identified at that time. This is about 2013, 2014. But we could see that in 2020, if we ended up having the increase in renewables that were anticipated, that we would need energy storage as a tool in the toolkit. And so we made a very decisive decision at that time, and I did, that we were not going to base procurement on need, that we were going to think about this as a market transformation program and require the utilities in California to start investing in energy storage as long as it was cost effective um, starting in 2014. It didn't have to be the lowest cost, but cost effective. And by doing that, we've now positioned ourselves to have this resource in 2020. You don't have a lot of things like that where you get to get the support for doing things earlier. Um, but I think when I think about one thing that our sector could improve on, it's having that improved trust between the customer, the regulator, and the utility to make investments now that we know are going to be needed in the 10 to 15 year period. So I'm going to ask you a question um, that I think I wrote it down because it was something that you said. So I'm just going to actually repeat back to you what you said, um, uh, which is this. <laughs> what It's not a hard one. Um, but what does it, you know, just given what you just said, right, in, in an industry that is really undergoing transformation um, and not really knowing kind of what direction that's going to be in, right, um, because every company is also... Um, every jurisdiction is also a little bit different in terms of how they regulate and how they answer those questions. And so the question I have for you is this, what does it mean for our sector to lead in climate change? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, I think first and foremost, it's having a, a commitment to doing something about it. Our sector isn't responsible for all the emissions by any means, but we represent a sizable share. And so one of the things that I've been impressed about over the last few years is utility executives saying, hey, climate change is real. Our product contributes to it. Let's have a plan to help keep providing this essential service, but reducing the environmental impact. And by reducing greenhouse gases in our system, we're also helping to reduce some of the air quality issues that oftentimes are associated with resources as well. And so I think it's just being acknowledging the problem and the opportunity is the first step of leadership. The second is planning. I mean, this is, gets back to when I think about what the utility should be doing versus the regulator, the utility should have ownership and take leadership over what the system needs to look like. You know, this is, these are our assets, this is our business. This is the resource mix that we, we can manage to get to our goals. And then the regulator is in a position to say, and to evaluate, are we doing that as cost-effectively as possible? Have we brought in the right stakeholders? Are we being thoughtful managers of customer funds? I mean, really as a regulator, that's the place I really wanted to sit in the most, which was making sure that utilities were being as good to customers as they could while achieving this goal. But the end state of the system, that's what we have some insight into. So I think leadership is having the types of plans that we're seeing utilities come out now with and saying, hey, in 2030, 2045, this is what our grid needs to look like. Therefore, here's the type of investments that we need along the way. Okay. So let's talk about the other kind of leadership. You are an African-American woman in a senior leadership position in a large utility, one of the largest in the country. Um, are there any other African-American women in leadership in your 
in that in that role in those senior roles. I'm not I'm not sure. So I'm asking. Uh, no, not in the officer ranks. Yeah. Okay. And so, how do you lead in that way? Um, there clearly have to be employees who are looking to you, um, either as a mentor or a sponsor, or you know, just as someone that they um, admire or aspire to be. And so, how do you lead in that way? Um, and also, then amongst your um, white colleagues who are also looking at you and your leadership. And and so, how do you talk about how you walk through all of that? Sure, uh, happy to. And as you are aware, this year in particular, is my, so I started, for those who don't know, I started at my company last October. So I'm just starting to near my one year anniversary and it has been a momentous year to say the least. Um, and the way I lead is just being my authentic self. And again, giving myself permission and grace to be that. And to know that I have gotten to this point in my life based on who I am. And there's a whole network of folks who have brought me to this place and not changing that or trying to change myself to fit some, some image of what others may think I should be. And so bringing my authentic self is, you know, being, um, I'm very candid about where I am in my life. And right now I have a four-year-old son. And so I talk about what it's like to, when people ask about, I, or I acknowledge the challenges with being a, a working mom um, in this environment. I have a very supportive husband. I talk about what it means to be supportive of him. And I share about, you know, when we've had, um, I talk about how important it has been to me to be a, a woman of color in leadership. One of the things that I've, I've done over the last several months as we've been talking about systemic racism coming forward and saying, hey, here's the systemic racism I've experienced throughout my career. Here's what microaggression has looked like in my career. And I've been fortunate that I've worked in lots of different places. And so when I talk about a work experience, it isn't pointing the finger at somebody I work with now. And I think that can be a challenge for, especially a lot of folks who work in utilities have been there a long time. And so when they talk about their professional challenges, it can seem really personal to their colleagues and to them. And for me, I'm able to reference back to things that had nothing to do with the people around me. And I think by able to bring that in, that adds a perspective, um, which is less personal to them. And it allows a moment of awareness. I also know it's just my responsibility to speak out on behalf of people who don't feel as comfortable speaking out, who don't feel that they, that, they're, that they're, they're, where they are in their career is tenuous enough that they, they don't wanna be the squeaky wheel. And having come from public service, I came from a position where I was constantly every two weeks sharing what I thought about things to um, as many people who wanted to watch. And so even though now I'm, in a, now I'm in a company, I'm used to being a public person. And so I think that's also been an advantage for me too, because I haven't, I'm not coming from corporate America. I'm coming from a much more public oriented uh, role and doing podcasts like these where you put it all out there. And um, I think that empowers people to put it out, the, out there themselves. Yeah. So you are a mom, I am a mom. And um, you know, I, I don't say lucky because my, my youngest is away at school in boarding school and I miss him terribly. Um, but I also kind of enjoy like being an empty nester because there were many children before him. And so it's kind of like, oh, I get a little bit of a break. Um, but I'm, I, I will say in this time, I've been highly sensitive to my colleagues who have young children because I can remember when I had a lot of, I had, you know, 
three, four young children in my house and thinking, I don't know how I would have been able to manage it. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, but talk about, right, how do you and your husband support one another? So many times we hear about if it's a woman who's in a position of leadership, we don't talk about how, um, do you feel responsible to still be supportive of your husband as he is to you? If you would just kind of share a little bit about that dynamic. Sure, happy to. As I said, I've got a supportive husband and he is in the first year of a new opportunity for him as well. He's a college professor of political science. And so he's teaching American politics and race politics right now. And so a, a um, not so easy time to be, to be teaching race politics and American politics. And one of the things that you know, I am very cognizant of is trying to manage my schedule in a way where I'm able to support him getting done what he needs to get done. And so there's a couple of things. One, what we agreed to do after about four months of uh, sharing time watching our son is to get some help. So we've hired someone to help us because we recognize that you can't do it all. And so part of sometimes being there for your partner, especially as a female executive, is to say, okay, financially, you know, how can we support each other in our goals? Um, but he, given his schedule, has, since our son's been born, been the one with who goes on field trips, who does the drop-off and, and pick up some daycare. And we have really open communication about some of the double standards out there. You know, when people see him with our son, they say, oh, good for you for watching him. Like, he's the babysitter, right? Or, or just, you know, they just, like, really give him a pat on the back for watching his own kid. And, you know, conversely, I talked to him about when I went on maternity leave, you know, people, people saying to me, oh, you know, as a mom, you really should take six months off. You know, you really need to be there and bond with your son. And I was a public official at the time. I said, I'm going to vote in a, you know, I'm going to vote in two weeks. Like, and, you know, that tension as a female leader of people thinking that you should prioritize your, your family over overwork and it, there's just a double standard in both ways and so one of the ways that we support each other is by communicating by sharing what our goals are um, he knows that I love our family and I also feel that I was put on this earth to be a leader and to make difference and to make a difference requires at times our families to sacrifice so they've moved with me you know my my son can talk to you about electricity and um, in the end, we're, we're making it work. And we also have supportive friends um, and supportive um, family. And I'll just end by saying, as I, I think this is a time where we need to be examining some of the institutions that we have to support uh, families, you know, working parents. Um, the, you know, the value of school has become a parent. And I give my, my hat off to all the parents out there, men and women who are homeschooling. Cause right now, at least my son's so young, he doesn't have to have to learn much, you know, structured. But if I was having to teach at the same time, I don't know how I would do it. And I, that would be a loss cause I would be pulling myself out of an opportunity professionally that I think will have an impact beyond my family. So what would you want young women who are disembarking on their career um, and trying to figure out what work-life balance looks like, if it, if there is such a thing, what would you, what would you share with them? I would share that there are pros and cons to getting married and having a family at any point in your career. And I waited until I was 
later in my career. And so there were certain things I got to avoid, but then certain challenges that presented themselves as well. And so I would encourage them, whatever they're choosing to do, to have people to talk with about it. Um, hopefully there's someone at their job they can talk to about how they manage, but if not, find support elsewhere. And just like one, you know, one small, couple small things I do in my own job, like I have to make dinner half the week, right? That's, we split dinner. And so if I'm on a work call at five o'clock, I may not show my face. You know, we like to show our faces on the Zoom and Teams, but I'll say I'm making dinner. So I'm engaged in this meeting, but I've got to multitask. It's, I think sometimes as leaders, we're afraid to show people how we're multitasking, which can be difficult. Um, so one thing I would tell them just to not give up on either of those uh, dreams, if it's to have a family, if it's to to get a certain career, because things are attainable, but they're not always attainable at the same time. And so I like to also be honest about some of the sacrifices I've had to make, like long hours, you know, not being the parent who goes to field trips. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I did do between public service and this job was I took some time off. And so I was able to be the parent to do drop off and pick up. I was able to establish you know, a unique relationship with my son that is now able to help persist and support us during this time. Um, and the last thing I'll, I'll say to, I would say to young women overall is every opportunity I've had, someone told me I wasn't ready for it yet. Yeah, whether it was the Rhodes Scholarship or becoming a CEC commissioner or utility executive, there's you know someone who said I didn't have enough experience or uh, I should do this first or that wasn't me. You know you have people who try to tell you who you are and what you can be, but what I've learned in my career is that I have a greater understanding of all the things I can be, and there's so many more things I can be than what I've already been. And people always like to keep you where they where they know you and where they feel familiar. And so again, you know, it's a hard thing to really live, but trusting yourself, like when you quiet your mind, if there's a decision that comes forward that you know is right for you, pursue it, be pragmatic, but pursue it. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Always Bet on Black. To subscribe or leave a review, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. And remember, always bet on Black.